encourage you to turn that Bible open to Galatians 2. If you don't have a Bible, in these black Bibles around you, you can find Galatians 2 on page 972. For this morning's message, I would like to follow a different pattern or structure than what I'm normally accustomed to. So I'm going to begin by telling a parable that I made up, like an illustrative story, and then I want us to see how that illustrative parable relates to our passage, and then we're going to go through our passage, and then I'm going to close with some applications for us. So that's, that's the, the flow of thought, and I hope that the parable helps get us all on the same page about what's going on here in this section of Scripture. So, here's the parable. We have a, a church member, his name is Sai, and he recently got baptized, so hopefully you all know who he is. He's from India, and I had the privilege, even last night, but in several other occasions, eating some of Sai's delicious cooking. He has worked in different restaurants before, and he makes some really good food, especially Indian food. So I want you to imagine Sai comes to the U.S. because he knows he has this amazing ability to cook Indian food, and he wants to start a restaurant. But there's just one dish that he serves at this restaurant because it's his secret special recipe. He teaches the recipe to a handful of people. He has, he has one key disciple that he teaches this recipe to. This, this disciple's name is Eddie, Edmund. And uh, Eddie is another church member of Embassy, and these guys are buddies, so it makes sense that Cy would teach Eddie, if you don't know. Um, and things start to go really well. Here in Chicagoland, the restaurant business that Cy has started with the help of Eddie and their posse and buddies is spreading all over Chicago, and people are finding the beautiful, wonderful taste of this Indian food as like none other that they've ever experienced. And so it is a hit. It is a success. Years later, as Sai returned back to India, he, uh, he made one quick trip. So he's in India. Eddie's running the show here in Chicago and spreading more and more restaurants and stores. But there's um, an encounter that Sai has as he makes a trip back to the States and uh, he runs into a guy, and we're going to call him Ronald McDonald, because Ronald McDonald's the CEO of this big company called McDonald's, and they're a huge competitor to the Sai restaurant. And so Sai runs into Ronald McDonald, and he shares with him his special dish and recipe, and Ronald McDonald gets converted. He turns away from burgers and cow, and he starts making chicken, and he starts saying, I want to help you make so many restaurants all over the United States and all over the world. It is my passion to share this recipe with the world. And so this starts a new enterprise. At uh, this point, Sai has been able to encourage not just Eddie in Chicagoland, but now all over the world, and business is growing like crazy. And you all know Ronald McDonald. Like, McDonald's are everywhere. This guy is an expert at marketing and getting everybody into his stores. The problem, though, comes 
when some of the stores that Ronald McDonald started, when he got them going and then left them with some managers, that he went to start other stores, that those managers started to question Ronald's recipe. You see what's going on now? They start questioning that Ronald might have left some ingredients out and they think he's a fake and that the true recipe is where Eddie is at in Chicago and they have the right recipe. And so these managers start adding new spices to the dishes and therefore making the customer base smaller because many of the Americans can't handle the spicy foods, which that's kind of true too, isn't it? So they heard rumors, these managers, that Eddie's restaurant, he had a different version and so they needed to align theirs with these rumors of adding more spices. And so now, Ronald is not happy. Ronald is very upset that he decides to now contact all of these different stores and he tells them that he is not the fake. That he got the recipe from Sai himself. Like this is the authentic recipe and you should make this recipe and you should neglect any others because this will be the one that is best for growing the business and everybody enjoying it and not having divisions between the spices. And so there were many people that questioned Ronald and they started saying, well, I'm not so sure. And so Ronald told them that no, not only is this the right recipe, but I want you to know that I made some visits to Chicago and I know Eddie. I know this guy that you think has the real recipe. And guess what? Eddie has affirmed that I have the right recipe. Eddie and all of those Chicago stores have, in fact, met me and my food, and they said, this is the right food. And so Ronald tried to convince these managers all over the United States that, hey, my recipe and the Chicago recipe is the same, and so get on board with this recipe. And then he tried to make them understand that they're all a part of the same business. There's no differentiation between the Chicago branches and any of the others. We are all one with the one true recipe. And so concludes my parable before we stretch out the illustrations too far and it start getting weird and wacky. About 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus that came onto the earth from heaven, a God-man. He trained some men to start churches in Jerusalem and gave them a new message centered around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Call it his recipe. So in this parable, yes, Sai is the master chef with the special recipe, and so unfortunately, Sai, you are representing Jesus. That is probably not something you would ask for, but he, he approved this. So just so you know, this is not news. Sai represents the message of Jesus, the one special recipe for life and hope for the whole world. That's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Now, Eddie represents this man named Peter. Because 2,000 years ago, after Jesus has left the earth and starts new churches, Peter becomes like headquarters for the church in Jerusalem. Like Chicago would be the headquarters of these restaurants. And Ronald, Ronald McDonald represents this, 
this guy that's really skilled, really up-and-coming star in the Jewish faith, and his name is Saul, who converts, and he gets his name changed to Paul. And he was one of the biggest threats to the businesses going well, to the gospel spreading. So Ronald represents Paul. Paul started many churches all over the world, while Peter mostly stayed in the headquarters of Jerusalem, and all of the Jerusalem churches there started sending people out, and so many people started to think that Peter and the early church in Jerusalem was the one with the true right message from Jesus, and that Paul was the fake, and that Paul had watered down or softened the message. And this letter of Galatians is his attempt to tell them, no, I am not a fake. I do have the right recipe. I have the true gospel message of Jesus. And here's my argument for it. And that's what we're in right now. That's catching you up to speed at what's going on in terms of Galatians. Paul is defending his authentic message, his authentic recipe, And he is telling them that he got it from Jesus himself in the same way that Cy gave it to Ronald McDonald. So if you look at chapter 1 briefly, you'll notice in verses 6 through 10, he starts very defensive in this letter and says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So he's saying it right from the start. I have the true message, and I didn't get it from my own ingenuity and making it up. No, I in fact gave you exactly what was delivered to me from Jesus, and so you should go with that and nothing else. If anybody tells you something different, do not listen to them. Some people would accuse Paul of of being a people pleaser, and he makes it clear in verse 10. Look, if you didn't get how strong my language was and I don't care to please you, look at verse 10. I'm not seeking the approval of man. I'm seeking the approval of God. And that's why I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 11 through 12, he makes clear where he got his message from for For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's Paul explaining where he got his message from, that he's got the right and only message, that he's not a people pleaser. And then he tells his story, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but in verses 13 through 24, he tells his story about how he became a Christian, how he got converted, and how Jesus met him. And he was an opponent to Christianity, but he became now a proponent to Christianity. He became an advancer of the gospel instead of a killer of it, literally killing Christians. And so now he starts helping people become Christians. And you see in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that he didn't even go to Jerusalem. He didn't need to go to headquarters to figure out, do I have the right message or not? Why would he need to do that? He got it straight from the source. These guys aren't special. There's nothing special about them that I need to get my message confirmed and check it with them. And so he explains that in verses 16 and 17. It wasn't until three years later, you see in verse 18, that he finally made a trip to Jerusalem. 
And then he saw Peter. That's the word there, Cephas there. That's his Aramaic name. So, so imagine Peter. He visited Peter. And the conclusion of that you see in verse 24 is everybody was happy with his message and they glorified God because of me and they were excited about what God was doing. That's where we left off in the story so far. And so what we're going to do is pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. And as we do so, I want to give you a heads up. I want to just have you be on the lookout for as I read the passage. So I want to give you three things. Three things to be on the lookout for as I read verses 1 through 14. First, be on the lookout for the idea of preserving the message. He wants to explain that one of his goals is to go to Jerusalem to preserve the message. Be on the lookout for that first. Then secondly, be on the lookout for his reason to go to Jerusalem another time was to make partners in the mission. That's the second thing I think you're going to see. And then finally, we're going to read verses 11 through 14, and you're going to see his protest against Peter's ministry. So we got three Ps that outline this section, and I want you to be on the lookout for the preservation of the message, and then the partnership in the mission, and then the protest against Peter and his ministry. So let's read this passage together and see if you can see it yourself. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, them being the apostles, though privately before those who seemed influential. I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's section one the preservation of the gospel. Section two, starting in verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that was given to me, they have gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so now he has partners in the mission. Finally, let's look at verses 11 through 14. The protest. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And there's his protest against Peter. So those are the three sections. And so what I want us to do is take the first section and start working through it a little bit, make a few comments, and then we're going to close with a few applications about this passage for us as a church and for you as an individual. So let's look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. And as we see this first section, he's preserving the message. He's heading to Jerusalem. And look, it says it took 14 years for him to go back to Jerusalem. Now we know three years after he was converted, we read that in chapter 1, he made a trip to Jerusalem. Then we know in Acts chapter 11 that there's a second trip that happened in Jerusalem by Paul. And it could be that that's what's being referred to here, or it could be the third trip that was made in Acts chapter 15. There's all kinds of debates about which one it is. I don't want to waste your time with that, but either one, it's Acts 11 or Acts 15. If you want my answer, I think it's Acts 11, because there was a great famine in the land, and there was a prophet named Agabus that made a revelation that said, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. So it kind of matches well, but there's other things that match with Acts 15. The point is, is he did not go because he thought, you know, it's been 14 years and I've never really conferred with Peter really thoroughly about my gospel. I only spent 15 days with him. Maybe I need to go back to Jerusalem and really get things sorted out. No, that's not why he went. He tells you right from the start, I went to Jerusalem 14 years later with Barnabas and Titus with me because, what's the answer he gave? Because Jesus told me to. Because of a revelation. Because God in his spirit led me to go back to Jerusalem. Not because I felt insecure about my message. I was confident that I had the right message. He had the right recipe. There was nothing that he had any doubts about that. And so that's what he's saying right from the start. Don't don't need to go there to check things with them. I need to go there to make sure the message is pure. Not my message, their message. And that's why there's this little tidbit. And so I brought along this guy named Titus. And as you keep reading the story, you realize that that's a, that's a bold move. Barnabas is a Jew, a circumcised Jew. Titus is a Greek, an uncircumcised non-Jew. And all this controversy starts brewing around these churches about, do Christians need to be Jewish converts first and then become Christians? Or can they just become Christians and believe in Jesus and not have to get circumcised? That's the debate that's going on, and you're starting to get introduced to it here in Galatians 2. And guess what, friends? For the next several weeks, if you keep coming back to church, we're going to talk a lot about circumcision. So you're welcome for Galatians. And it's going to get a little crazy in the later chapter, actually, but I'll save that for another day. Anyway, here's what he's doing. He is going because of a revelation, and he's bringing along Titus. And it's a little bit of a test. Are they going to require Titus to be circumcised? Hmm, let's see what happens. So, let's keep reading. Here in verse 2. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, and that's again why I think it's Acts 11, because Acts 15 was very public, and this is private. So, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the inchot among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. There's purpose statement number two. Why did he go to Jerusalem? We saw in verse one, because of a revelation. Now we see in verse two, another reason, and it's so that I do not run in vain, so that my ministry is not a waste, 
so I'm not wasting my time. Now, many people get confused here, like, wait a second. Didn't you just belabor the point that he did not go to make sure he had the right message? And when you read verse 2, it kind of sounds like, yeah, so I went to make sure I had the right message and wasn't like screwing things up and, you know, wasting my time. That's not what he's saying. It would make no sense to read chapter 1 and say, I did not need those apostles. I did not need to consult anyone. I got my message from Jesus. I know it's the right one. Oh, yeah, and then 14 years later, I kind of needed to see if I had the right one. Now, if, if that were you, if you were writing a letter, do you think that you would want people to read it and be like, yeah, this person makes no sense and they're illogical and they're basically an idiot? Like, no, give Paul the benefit of the doubt. What he's saying here has nothing to do with doubting his message. It's doubting their message and making sure that they're on the same page. Because think about it like this. If Jerusalem is headquarters of Christianity at the time, and they're giving a different message that circumcision is necessary, that's going to mess up Paul's ministry. And he wants to make sure that's not the case and wants to make sure that everybody's on the same page so that Christianity flourishes and the name of Jesus flourishes all over. And there's no, well, Paul's going this way and Peter's going this way. No, no, we're all going the same direction. So he wants to make sure he's not wasting his time because his ministry is now going to be taken over by all these Peter followers later. That's why he's going and that's why he says not running in vain. So, Move on to verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So he brought a test with him. Hey, I wonder what they're going to do with Titus. They're going to make him get circumcised? And the answer was no. And he's now sharing that information to a church in Galatia. So Galatia would be southern Turkey is where I think these churches were. Lydia, uh, uh, there's in Acts chapter 13 and 14, you see the different towns in southern Galatia where he was. And in those places, he's writing these letters to these churches and telling them, hey, this is the true message and circumcision is not required. And his point here is to say, if circumcision was required, then why did Titus not get circumcised by even the Jerusalem apostles? And so, it's a pretty convincing point, isn't it? If you're following the rumors that, hey, Peter and those guys require circumcision, well, no, they didn't. Titus didn't get circumcised. Let's pick it up now in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's this first section. He is going to try and preserve the gospel for the Galatians. That is his hope for this whole trip And he is telling them that when he came and brought Titus, they didn't circumcise him. And the only reason why there was even controversies about circumcision is because of what kind of brothers? False ones. Not true Christians. So brother would have been a terminology to say, hey, if God is our father, then we are all his children and we're brothers and sisters. These brothers aren't real brothers. They're false brothers. They're illegitimate children. They're they're actually just not children. They're non-Christians. Make sure you're catching the weight of this. To require circumcision before becoming a follower of Jesus is to be a non-Christian. To 
to not believe the gospel, to have the wrong recipe, to add something to the recipe. No, no, the recipe's fine. The gospel's fine as it is. The message is good. Don't add something to it. Don't add circumcision to it. And so that makes someone a false brother, a false sister. And they slipped in, it says. You see those two different words, slipped in and then spied? So they had very wrong motives. They, they were not really in the in crowd. And that's where all this started. He's telling them where these controversies came from. It's from this circumcision group. Throughout church history, it's been called the Judaizers, this circumcision party, these people who say, we follow Jesus, but we also think you need to get circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Well, those people are spies slipping in. And notice the way Paul talks about the contrast between his message and their message. He says that his message is a message of freedom. That following Jesus is a, you are shackled to your slavery of sin. You're shackled to the slavery of the law. And because of Jesus Christ, you have been set free. These people, the Judaizers and circumcision party, want to put the shackles of the law back on. They want to make it a requirement for you to do certain activities and works to make you right with God. And he's saying that is enslaving. Their message is slavery. The message of Jesus is freedom. This theme, just like circumcision, is going to appear again and again and again in Galatians. You're going to hear a lot about slavery versus freedom. We are free men, free women. We are all free in Christ. And the implications of that will continue for the rest of this sermon series. So realize this is introducing a very important concept for the rest of the book. I love the way he says, we did not submit or yield to these Judaizer people even for a moment. Like there was no question about it. As these guys are talking about circumcision being necessary, they're like, well, we didn't even give that a thought for a second. You see how strong his case is building off of one another that these Galatian churches that think, well, back over in, over in uh, Jerusalem, these guys, they're all about the circumcision idea. It's like, no, not even for a second did they consider that. They didn't require Titus to get circumcised, and nobody even gave them a second chance. And so the message of the gospel was kept pure and preserved for the whole world. It's an important meeting that happened. You might want to call it the most important missionary meeting that ever took place. That them getting on the same page on that day has led to the spread of the gospel for you and me to experience the freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the second section, the partnership in the mission. I'm going to start reading verses 6 and following now. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. 
Now, as we look at this passage and we see this section about partnering in the mission, he begins by talking about those who seemed to be influential. Are you starting to notice as you do what's called mirror reading? As you read Paul, you can kind of get a sense for what the Galatians must have thought about Peter and James and John, these apostles that were in Jerusalem. Well, these guys are important. They're more important than Paul. They're influential. They are pillars, he says which I think is an Old Testament illustration of they are like the pillar of the temple. They're, they're the new temple, which is the church. And so he's using that as, I think, a metaphor. But it probably was used even in the first century to say, yeah, they're foundational, the pillars of the New Testament, New Covenant church, the new temple of Christ. So he says that they seem influential, but not to who? Not to me and not to God. God shows no partiality. All are one in Christ, including Peter, James, and John. There is nobody that is somehow superior or better or pope-like. This completely undermines the doctrine of the pope, by the way. Peter was the first pope? Ha! I don't think so. You think he's influential? He's somehow special? Nope. Right here, Galatians chapter 2, God sees no difference between the apostles. They added nothing to my message. I love that. Paul came and presented, here is my message. I've been preaching to all these different churches. And guess what they added? Nothing. Oh, but Paul, you left out this part. That's the message. Paul, you have the right message of Jesus. Nothing to add. Not only did they not add anything to his message, they affirmed him and his apostleship. It says that they saw the grace that was given to him. They saw that this man was transformed. He went from a Christian killer to a Christian maker of disciples, greatest missionary in the early church. And he says that these pillars are my now new partners. The only thing they brought up, they didn't add anything to my message. They just brought up this one thing. They said, make sure you want to take care of the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do, which is why I think, again, this is the Acts 11 occurrence to going to Jerusalem, because if there was a famine in the land and there was a lot of poor people and Paul was known for going around and raising funds to help for poor Christians that couldn't eat, it's like, well, I, I was already doing that. I was already raising funds. So yeah, I was eager to care for the poor. So when they gave me that little reminder, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Let's care for the poor. And so now they're partners in ministry. Notice he says they gave the right hand of fellowship, meaning that they're now business partners in this ministry called Making Disciples for Jesus. So it's like Cy commissions Eddie, and then Cy commissions Ronald McDonald, and now Eddie and Ronald McDonald. They're partners, and they're on the same team together. That's what's going on. Last section. Not only... Did he preserve the message with the Titus test? But he got partners with the apostles, and he takes it one step further. Like, if his argument has not been good enough at this point that, guys, I am a legit apostle, he then goes to Peter himself and confronts him, and that's his opposition to Peter's section, the rebuke, the protest against Peter's ministry. Let's read that one more time. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And I actually think that speech goes on into next week's message, but we needed to break it somewhere and not make this go on for an hour and five minutes like last week's message. But it was good last week. It's just a funny joke. Anyway. Maybe not too funny. So we're cutting it off there. Peter is getting confronted by Paul. And you see right from verse 11, he said, I came to his face because he stood condemned. He's guilty. And what was he guilty for? For eating food with Gentiles at one point. And that was the reading you had earlier from Acts chapter 10 when Carl came up and read to us. Peter gets it. He gets a vision from God and he sees everything now is clean and there's no clean and unclean animals and the new covenant is now established and the old covenant is done away with. And so now we can eat pork and we can eat beef and we can eat shellfish and we can eat all kinds of things that we weren't allowed to eat. And we can eat not just those foods, but we can eat those things with Gentiles. And so there's this guy named Cornelius and he's a Greek. And so now Peter and Cornelius are together. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this turning point where he's not just solely a Jewish guy. He's now participating in meals and fellowship with Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. But then some people come from the circumcision party and he starts to get a little afraid. Oh no, what if I don't make them happy? And so fear of man kicks in. And he's now afraid of what they're going to think or what they're going to do or maybe even persecution. Who knows what fear is at the core here. But what we do know is he says, fearing the circumcision party in verse 12, he drew back and separated and only ate with Jewish people. And notice the way verse 13 says that many other people followed along with him. He was a key leader for sure. Not special as like a pope but a key leader and an influencer. And as a key leader and influencer, even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is a word that you and I are used to hearing maybe in English, but in this original language, the word he's using here is about somebody who's being an actor, like acting in a play or a theatrical performance. And what he's saying is Peter and all these other guys, they're putting on a mask. They're putting on a costume and they're acting like they're being someone who they're truly not. So Peter truly is a follower of Jesus. He's not a false brother. He's a legit, genuine brother of the faith. But when he acts this way, it's like he's in character and appeasing people just for these moments. And so that's the word that's being used. Hypocrisy in Greek is the idea of putting on a costume and covering up your face and pretending to be someone else. He says, that's what you're doing. And he called him out for it. And notice the way it says, he did it in front of everybody in verse 14. I said to Cephas before them all. Now, I don't think that that's the customary way to call someone out in sin. 
So this is why we don't have regular rebuke sessions during the service order here at Embassy Church. But because Peter is such a prominent leader, and because Peter is influencing so many other people, and because what he's doing is in public, it seems, I think, appropriate that that's what Paul does here. And so he calls him out, and he says, what you're doing is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that word is the word where we get our word ortho, like orthopedics to straighten your feet out, or orthodontists to straighten your teeth out. So he's saying that you are not straight. You're not walking straight. You're not straight with the truth of the gospel. You're not in a straight line. The gospel is a straight line, and you, you're all around it. You're not staying straight with it. Being a hypocrite. And that's what he calls him out for. And his reason is to say, how can you sometimes say, hey, I'm going to act like a Jew, and then act like a Gentile, and then act like a Jew, and then act like a Gentile? Like, man, pick. pick. What is it? And notice that he doesn't say he has the wrong message or questions his salvation. He's saying, you're a true brother, and you're just, your conduct, you have the right gospel, you have the wrong conduct. So he never questions Peter's message. He is not a Judaizer. He's preaching the right message. He has the wrong conduct in his life. So let's conclude with three applications for us. And they should flow right from these points that we see in this section of Scripture. Application number one, we need to preserve the message of the gospel by delivering it as is and not adding anything to it. We, not just Pastor Phil, we. We are responsible as a church to preserve this message week in and week out as you are hearers of it, as you are members of this church. Notice that this book is written to the churches in Galatia. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Now I'm writing this letter to the churches. Now those churches include pastors and teachers, elders. That's the customary pattern when Paul started churches. So they had leaders. So a guy like me is probably teaching at some of these churches on a regular basis discipling people, caring for them, helping them, counseling them, mentoring them, telling them about Jesus, all those things. But is is these letters written to those men, those leaders, or are these letters written to the churches? To the churches in Galatia, you collectively are responsible for preserving the message of the gospel. And I did all of this stuff in Jerusalem to preserve it for you, for you Galatians. So, for you, members of Embassy Church in particular, this is your application. As the word gets preached week in and week out, it is your job to stay awake. That's a good start. To have your ears and your heart and your mind attentive and ask yourself, was the message preached throughout the whole service adding anything to the gospel? Or was it being faithfully presented Was Pastor Phil being like a chef where he's cooking up his own recipe or like a waiter coming and just delivering it? Which one should we be? You know, the Mona Lisa picture, you guys know that famous painting, the Mona Lisa, one of the most well-known and famous paintings in the world? It is 
residing in a bulletproof case. It's considered to be one of the most precious paintings in the last centuries. It has moved twice from its current location in that bulletproof case, once in 1963 to Washington, D.C., and once to Tokyo in 1974. So imagine with me. Could you imagine being the messengers, the carriers of the painting? And you take it out of the bulletproof case, and you decide, you know, Mona Lisa needs a little lipstick. You know, I don't think I really like her hair here. We should preserve the message the same way you should preserve a painting made by men. With uttermost care, as if your life depends on it, as if this is the most, respons- most important responsibility you have as a member of this church, is to preserve the message of the gospel. Do not add anything to it. Do not allow me to add anything to it or any other preacher, speaker, scripture reader, prayer, song deliverer, whatever. This service, week in and week out, needs to just present. Here's here's the message. And here's the message in a nutshell. The God of the world created heaven and earth. He made us as his image bearers, like prince and princesses. He being creator king, he did not make us slaves in service. He made us like prince and princesses. But we rebelled and said, no, we want to be king. And we all have followed that rebellion since that first rebellion in the early stories of the creation of heaven and earth. We have followed Adam and Eve. And so therefore the world has been subjected to sin and rebellion and evil and suffering because we have rebelled against the king of the universe's commands and his ways and we think our ways are better. And so the world, as you look around it, is full of evil. It is full of badness all the time. Just recently I was listening to one pastor who said that in England he would regularly use this illustration. He'd say some people don't think that badness is in the world. Like, the people are generally good people. I'm sure some of you have heard that. Maybe even some of you now are thinking that. And then he says, I want all of you right now to reach down into your pocket. How many of you hold keys in your purses or in your pockets? If the world's full of a bunch of good people, why do you got keys? Why does your car need to be locked in the parking lot of a church? Why does your house need to be locked? Because you don't truly believe people are just generally good. Because you know that the world is full of a lot of sin and badness. That's why you hold keys. Even if you don't want to admit it. Deep down, you all know that this world is full of pain and suffering. It is full of evil. And you, you have contributed to it in your own heart. And God gave us his law to only reveal how bad we truly are. And so God gave us the Ten Commandments as we studied recently. He gave us his law and we realized we can't obey the law because of the sin in our hearts. And so God brings us something else, not just laws. He gives us the lawgiver himself. Jesus comes into the earth, born of a virgin, born completely pure, no sin in his heart. He lives a perfect life. He dies a death on the cross that he did not deserve. It's the death that you deserved. And on that cross, he bore all the shame, all the slavery, all the guilt, so that we could sing songs like today, O sinner, come home, lay down your burdens, come home, and receive a gift of salvation. It's a free gift. There's nothing that adds, is added to the gift and the work that Jesus did on the cross for us.
He was buried. He was truly dead, stayed dead for three days in the ground. Triumphantly on that first Easter Sunday, he rose again over death, over evil, evil in your heart, evil in the world. And he promised that after he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, he says, I have all authority over heaven and earth. I have completely conquered even death itself. And so now I want you to go make disciples and then I'm going to return and renew everything. That, my friends, is the gospel. That's what we here at Embassy, in summary, believe about the message of the Bible. And did you notice that that message says, if you would believe in Jesus, receive a free gift, then you could be saved? If you just receive freedom this morning and not slavery, then you could have a whole new life? That God would even put his spirit inside of you? This is a glorious message. Why would you want to add anything to it? You can't. You add some more spices to the recipe, you mess it up. So don't do it. That's point number one. We must preserve the message by delivering it as waiters, as servants, and not adding anything to it. Point number two. We must partner with others in the mission field so that we can make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. We as a church are not all by ourselves. We pray for other churches. We cooperate with other churches locally, nationally, and globally. Every single week, if you come either downstairs before service at breakfast time or up here as we pray every week, we are praying for the gospel to spread to the nations through our partners. And that's why last week we had a church from Woodstock come here because we want to partner and support them. We help Redeeming Grace Chapel in Kankakee, Illinois, because we want to see the gospel spread all over Chicagoland. And we like what is going on in Kankakee. We want to fan the flame. We have a network that helps encourage me as a pastor and does different events and things throughout Chicagoland called the Chicagoland Gospel Network. And we cooperate and help other churches. We've given finances to that network. We have done things to help support the praying, the supporting, and the help of churches, not just here at Embassy. From day one, this has been a commitment. Partnering with other people. Paul did not go to Jerusalem and say, you know, I'm pretty good all by myself, guys. Like, I can, I can pretty much handle this on my own. We should not have that attitude as a church. We are not good by ourselves. We need help. We need support. And this is a big mission. It is the whole world. And we can only do our part in that mission. So let's partner with people nationally and internationally. Let's pray for the work in Dubai that we partner with. Let's pray for the missionaries that we have sent out that are now currently over in Southeast Asia. This is what we do. We partner. Just like Paul partnered with these people. Say, okay, this is your calling. This is your mission. You're going to go to the circumcised. I'm going to go to the uncircumcised. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. We as a church need to realize that we cannot do this mission on our own. And we prayerfully, dependently need Christ to lead us to partners. Finally, last point. Preserve the message. Partner with others in the mission. And protect ourselves against the hypocrisy of walking out of step with the gospel and idolizing leaders. Are you surprised that Peter is getting rebuked? And he has been known by Catholics as the first pope. He has been known as one of the most influential leaders of the Christian faith. And he, he can fall out of line. Do not idolize any Christian leader. All of them have sin. 
All of them are susceptible to falling, and many of them have. Pray that we don't. Pray fervently that your leaders stay pure in their hearts, pure in their message. That you don't hear, well, Pastor Phil has to resign because he is now not worthy to be the pastor anymore. His conduct is now so far out of step with the gospel. Protect this church, not just through prayers, but through accountability, through loving relationships that we would care to protect ourselves against hypocrisy. It is good for us. It is right for us to have conversations like Peter and Paul had together. Sometimes they will be public. If I fall, you should publicly announce why. Not all the details necessarily, but you should tell. Because 1 Timothy 5 says, if somebody that's a leader falls, you need to let the whole church know why. As a warning to them and as a reminder to any other leaders. Now, if you're here and just your normal member, we're not going to always come up here and explain, well, so-and-so's not a member anymore because they've done this and that. But it is right for us to have relationships where we protest, where we get in the face of. I opposed him to his faith. We don't have to be jerks about it. That doesn't need to be your spiritual calling. Hey, that's my calling. I'm going to be the one that's always telling people what to do. No, probably not. You're probably the worst person to do it. But it should be done in love, in gentleness. And in fact, we're going to hear more about this in Galatians chapter 6. If any brother is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should go and try and restore the brother. But watch out yourself. So there'll be more of this to come. We've been introduced this morning, I think, to a lot of important themes, and I pray and hope you will come back and keep hearing the pure message of the gospel as it's delivered in Galatians. And you'll be encouraged each week to partner in the mission and help protect us as a church community from hypocrisy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to give you thanks for these words from Paul, how helpful they are because we know that they're not just from him, they are inspired by you through the Holy Spirit. So we're thankful for the very word of God. We're thankful this morning for the gospel, that there's nothing that needs to be added. We're thankful that we don't have to add Bible reading, church attendance. We're thankful that we don't have to add abstention from alcohol or dancing or certain dress that we wear, whatever rules and regulations that often get muddied up and thinking that's what it means to be a Christian, I pray, God, that everyone here leaves today knowing the pure message of Christ is enough. He sets you free from slavery and he gives you a new heart and causes you to obey his laws because you want to. God, I pray that that would be what happens week after week as we open up your word and we hear the good news of freedom. Thank you for that freedom in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.